Oh, we're actually recording this? I mean, I am recording it, but uh, okay. we'll see how ambitious I am. Yeah, I wouldn't use all of it. <laughs> I'm a little out of shape here. You don't want to go all the way to, uh, you don't want to go all the way point by point through your ballot? Oh, I mean, I actually do, but I want that to be in part of the, the, uh, the part where we record on purpose. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Getting close to the beginning of the season. We've got a preseason top 25. We have Keith McMillan back on the Around the Nation podcast this week, uh, this month for the uh, July 2017 Around the Nation podcast. Obviously, preseason top 25 will be a a big part of what we're talking about, but a lot of other things uh, coming up, too. Before we get to our interviews this month, we'll be talking with uh, Aaron Hafner, the head coach of Luther College in Iowa. We'll be talking with Jeff Nahr, the head coach of Kings, and then Scott Highsmith, the head coach of East Texas Baptist University. But Keith, welcome back to the podcast. We tried to keep it clean and uh, you know keep it uh, keep everything where you found it uh, for your uh, month off. Yeah, I, I can't articulate how thrilled I am to be back here instead of in the Virgin Islands. Uh, I'm so happy to be <laughs> back on the podcast and back in the uh, on the mainland, back at work. <laughs> you, can't, you can't articulate it because the words don't exist that describe it because it's not possible? Something like that. No, I, actually, it is kind of, um, it's sort of a rite of passage. I don't not passage, a rite of summer for you and I. Yeah. Um, once you get at, off your summer vacation, uh, or at least for me, um, you start planning kickoff. And it's, it's weird because you're not, I'm not very much in a football mindset yet. You know, you're still taking kids to the pool and doing grilling out on the back deck. And then all of a sudden we have to start, you know, we have to turn the, the top 25 pole in. And so it, um, it becomes um, over the course of the next six weeks, you and I and, and 30 of our closest D3 football friends will start to, to piece together what's going to happen uh, this season in D3 and, and get in that football mindset. And it's um, the go, jumping back into the podcast is helping me, um, start to, to inch toward that place. Well, we put the top 25 poll out on Monday morning. Uh, defending champ Mary Harden-Baylor, number one in a fairly overwhelming fashion, 16 of the number one votes. Uh, Mount Union with uh, three at, uh, at number two. Whitewater got four first place votes. Oshkosh got a couple as well. Um, you know, Keith, we'll probably talk a lot over the course of the next... 16 to 17 podcasts about uh, where our polls, uh, where our ballots are. Um, I would just come out right at the top and say what I think I said on last month's podcast, and you can correct me with if I'm wrong because you've listened to it more recently than I have, but uh, I voted for Mount Union number one, and I think that was something that I had been fairly set on coming into the, the whole process. Uh, you did say that in, in the podcasts and for any listeners out there who didn't listen uh, last month I participated as a listener uh, only for the first time yeah. I think yeah. um, and it was a, a enjoyable experience uh, I'd go back and listen to that one if I were you um, I agree actually with you on, at, at number one I thought um, Mount Union first of all you know preseason voting is such a dicey prospect to begin with because you don't have any games to go off of you don't have any results you don't have any eye test you really just have last season which you're trying to um put away as much as possible because for you know for some of these teams 
half, two-thirds of their starters aren't back. So uh, really that main piece you, you have to go with, besides name recognition, which is sort of a flimsy thing to vote on anyway, is is which starters are back and, and what you expect them to do this season. Um, but I, I thought there was a piece of information from last season that was very helpful in helping me sort out whether Mary Harden, Baylor, uh, Mount Union, or somebody else would be number one. And that was that, that Mount Union had to go to Mary Harden Baylor in the semifinal round um, in a playoff game that was uh, end up being 14-12 final. Um, Mount Union had a possession uh, late in that game with a chance to, to maybe drive for what would have been a game-winning field goal. Um, Mary Harden Baylor won that game, won the national championship. I think they deserved both, but they don't bring a whole lot back from, from that team. Uh, six starters on offense, uh, not including Blake Jackson. They lost a, a bunch of key starters, really some of the best players in the country on defense. And then Mountain Union has 14 starters back, and they found their quarterback through the course of the playoffs last season in Dom Davis. So that was the uh, the the deciding uh, thing for me between those two. Once I narrowed it down, because, you know, Wisconsin Oshkosh, St. Thomas, Whitewater, uh, programs like that also could be in consideration for number one. Uh, but for me, none of them had quite enough back to, uh, to, to compete with what I think will be a very good Mountain Union team. And, and then, of course, the crazy thing, uh, this happens every year, and it's going to be even more pronounced this year because when you look at Mountain Union's schedule, I think the, the only game that really jumps off from a national perspective is the Week 11 game of John Carroll. Uh, if we start with Mountain Union at number one, it's probably not going to be a loss that that moves them out. Yeah. It, it'll be somebody else being really impressive to the point where we, we have to make that adjustment as voters and say, both these teams are really good or five of these teams are really good, but here's the one I think that's number one. A bunch of uh, voters certainly did that last year and eventually it bore out in the final result too. Uh, one of the things that, uh, of course, the poll, as the at the point that we're recording this, the poll's been out for a little bit over 12 hours. Uh, there's been the typical amount of reaction, shall we say, and the typical style of reaction. But one of the things that I found really interesting was uh, uh, our friend Logan Hansen, the guy who does the, uh, the Hansen ratings, he talked about how um, I don't remember if this was on Twitter or on our message board, uh, but he mentioned that uh, his preseason rankings, and I'm super paraphrasing, so I apologize if I don't get this right, are about 75% based on last year's results. And then the rest of the 25% is a regression of the previous four years. And I'm thinking, you know, as a top 25 voter, as a human myself, I think I probably go through some of that process as well. Um, you know, I go back and look at some of the teams on my ballot, um, you know, I, I, uh, I have Wabash just uh, barely peeking inside my top 20, even though they did not have a, a Wabashian type season last year. Some of that is what mathematically we might refer to as a regression of the previous four years. The human might refer to as tradition. You expect Wabash will probably still be good. Linfield lost a ton, but you expect Linfield will st probably still be a top 10 team. Things like that that kind of get weighed into the preseason uh, mixture as well. Yeah, well, the the first thing is I have to point out that Logan does ratings, right? Yes. We do a we do a poll, and then anybody who just does one a one off in a magazine that is a, a ranking. Uh, only because, <laughs> yes, thank only you because for the... I, I gave him a hard time about it on on Twitter, and now well, I have to uh, I mean, point out that he does... what he does is is a mathematical uh, a rating. But then you rank the teams based on that rating. So I guess uh, if I'm gonna um, what's the I'm super gonna nitpick right there, I guess. Okay, anyway, back on topic. Semantics. It's my, it's my fault for getting off. D3semantics.com. <laughs> this is, well, you know, 
we've both at one time been employed as copy editors uh, in our life. So this is kind of built in and ingrained. Um, I remember copy editors. So I think you hit on something that's that's fairly important. Um, Again, as preseason voters, you're working without a ton of data Um, that relates to this season. Um, name recognition is very tempting to to go by, and it would probably, in a lot of cases, be a pretty good, pretty pretty safe way to do this thing, right? Oh, uh, Mount Union probably going to win the OAC. Johns Hopkins very likely most seasons going to win the Centennial. Uh, Wheaton or North Central, maybe Illinois Wesleyan is going to win the 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 CCIW. These are things that you can generally yeah. predict without without going off the board too much. But we've we've been doing this long enough, and we've seen the turnover. And, and there have been a couple seasons where I've crunched the numbers. Uh, about half the conferences, maybe a little more than half uh, on any given season, or at least half the playoff bids, tend to turn over from season to season. So uh, a lot of times what will happen is maybe that Johns Hopkins, maybe this year it's Muhlenberg. Maybe that uh, Wesley or Rowan or Salisbury, maybe this year it's Frostburg State. Uh, and so they're part of our responsibility it's, and it's a little easier for us to do this in August after we have all the information for kickoff than it is right now in, in July, even though we are high information voters. Um, <laughs> high information of, voters. Nice. It, well, you, I mean, you literally sent out a spreadsheet for us to work off of. So <laughs> we have no excuse to not at least have some idea what we're doing. Yeah. Um, but part of the job is is to, to be able to figure out which championship teams from last season might take a step back, which teams that were, were a game off last season or had a big injury and, and they were 8-2 and two instead of 10-0, and 0, what, which teams are going to make that leap? And so, you know, one of the keys to, to seeing where that might happen is returning starters. And you look at Alfred, which was a very good team last season, uh, went out in, in the postseason in a 70-45 to 45 game against Mount Union. Um, you know, most times you hang 45 on Mount Union, you'd be pretty proud of yourself. Um, but they only have eight starters back. Co eight starters back. So those are teams that um, that I didn't personally rank in the top 25, even though they were very good last season. On the flip side, you you look at uh, Frostburg State, 11 starters back on offense, nine on defense. That's a team that I put higher than I guarantee yeah. I've ever put Frostburg State in all the time we've been doing this. Yeah. Um, 15 years, 15 years of the poll, by the way. Yeah, and another one I liked was uh, Case Western. Eight starters on offense, ten on defense, and one of the starters is is, is the quarterback uh, Rob Kuda. Am I saying his name right, Kuda? As far as I know, yeah. I'm so I'm so out of practice right now because it's July. Uh, um, and and Whitewater was another one. Only four back on defense, and defense has often been their calling card. Um, but they found a quarterback last season in Cole Wilbur, and then they have ten starters back on offense. Wheaton. 10 on offense, 9 on defense, uh, North Central, 9 and 8. You, know, you can go on and on. But a lot of the way these votes should be uh, should be shaped, should, should, we should be working with the information that we have. And, and right now, you know, um, John Carroll is a good example of a team that was a finalist last season but had a coaching staff turnover, only five back on offense, although they do have a quarterback, uh, and only four back on defense. So you don't know what they're going to be. How can you put them fourth – Right where they finished last season, or yeah. third, or fifth, or wherever they finished on your particular ballot. How can you put them in that same spot um, when you're looking at a Wheaton, for example, that has 19 starters back? Um, I think part of our, our job is is to not just rehash last season's final results, and move things up and down a little bit, but to really go a little deeper into it and uh, and, and 
we uh, we're given that information to work with. Keith said we could go on and on, and we very well could go on and on. I don't want to go too much further into this, although it is certainly the biggest piece of uh, individual news that uh, we're going to have here at this point in the season. Uh, but I, I do want to uh, spotlight a couple of things. Let's see. One of the things that uh, uh, I wanted to mention is, that, as a reminder, and to people who are kind of looking at a poll for the first time or looking at uh, really looking at a uh, top 25 with a critical eye. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is uh, this is obviously the uh, amalgamated opinion of 25 different voters across the country. And these voters represent 25 different conferences or different regions of the country. We have uh, six voters in each of Division Three football's four regions. And then uh, that's 24. I'm number 25. Um, so we have that. We've really tried to spread the votes across the country so that we have, uh, again, just as much of an ability to flatten out any uh, regional bias as much as possible. Uh, secondly, if you're looking at a top 25, um, look at not just the ranking, you know, the number to the left, look at the number to the right, the number of points. Um, each ballot, I assume people are, are familiar with the basic poll construct, you get 25 points if you're first place on someone's ballot, all the way down to one point if you're number 25. But look at where the teams clump up, look at where the gaps are. So um, there's a bit of a gap between uh, number four and number five, between Oshkosh and St. Thomas. Oshkosh with 556 points, St. Thomas with 507 then another big gap to Wheaton and North Central, which uh, is uh, almost a tie. They're only four points apart. Another jump, and then John Carroll and Linfield and St. John's are three teams within 17 points. It's just something to kind of keep in mind where, um, you know, even down at the bottom, there's this clump, Alfred Case, St. John Fisher, Western New England. You get to the point, especially this point in a preseason poll, there are just a lot of teams where, you know, the jury is way, way out for so many reasons um, for – uh, for Alfred, it's you know not having the tremendous quarterback that led them to a, a twelve and one season, and and all sorts of things like that. So it's really uh, it, that's something else I think that's worth looking at too. Look how far you are from the next team ahead of you, and also also this is especially true in Division Three football. Sometimes teams don't move a lot, but you can still get some indication of where the trend might be going if you watch the points where. You know, if teams five and six are 51 points apart this week, you know, maybe after a couple of weeks of games, if not, even if no teams lose in that group, you might see two teams getting closer together or you might see them getting farther apart, depending on how St. Thomas and Wheaton do in in football with only 10 regular season games. Uh, a lot of it is about style points, Keith. Sure, um, because there's not going to be a lot of, of overlap. Um, among the top teams until you get to week, what what for us is week twelve, but it'll, it'll be you know the the first playoff game, and then you start seeing some of these top teams play each other. Um, you know the conference members will play each other, so Whitewater and Oshkosh will clash, St. Thomas and St. John's will, Wheaton and North Central will, but you will have as a voter no real mechanism to compare uh, how St. John's is against Linfield, for example, and those are two teams that are basically in the same spot in the poll. So you, you do, as a voter, have to do some of that. Um, I think we've described it a long time ago as it, it's like it's art science, right? It's like an art and a science. 
because there's some of it is clearly data-based and and you're crunching numbers and then some of it is 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 subjective and it just has to be that way um Uh, hold on i'm just going to point out that keith is the one who invented the word on this podcast so far i'll give you the portmanteau of archance i'm not sure we've used it here maybe you've used it that uh at work or something no, I've had this conversation on the D3 boards. That was a poll okay. from All right. maybe eight to ten years ago. Gotcha. Um, strangely, these things reside in this little part of my brain that's marked <laughs> D3. There you go. Um, you giving the the points speech, and, and you've <laughs> done it on several podcasts. Yes. Um, so if this is your first time uh, joining us, uh, welcome. Now you're official. Um, it, it actually resonates because the first thing I did when I saw this poll uh, today and obviously I voted last week and and didn't see what everyone else did in, until it was all together. Uh, I was like, how is Whitewater ahead of Oshkosh? Um, you know, both teams lost a lot on one side of the ball and bring back nine or ten starters on the other side. Uh, both bring the quarterback back. Um, but I looked at it and then I looked at the points. Whitewater's five sixty one and Oshkosh's five fifty six, and I said, ah, they're basically ranked the same place. Doesn't doesn't really matter. Also. And, and, there was one head-to-head game last year, and Whitewater did win that game. True, and 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 uh, my I was just going off the freshest memory in my head, which was Oshkosh nearly winning the national championship. That that and that also happened. Yes, that was a thing. So so yeah, you're right. You, you could find a reason for either either thing, and and I guess um, we're sort of assuming that. Uh, we have the poll in front of us, and, and we're sort of assuming that other people have seen it or clicked on it, and we'd prefer that you did. But uh, if you listen to this in the gym or in the car or whatever, uh, here's the, the top ten really quickly. Uh, it's Mary Harden, Baylor, one, Mount Union, Whitewater, Oshkosh at four, St. Thomas at five, Wheaton six, North Central seven, John Carroll eight, Linfield nine, St. John's ten, uh, then Wesley and Harden-Simmons, and I'm not going to read the whole thing off, but um, to give you an idea of of where those break points were, um, Whitewater, Oshkosh, St. Thomas, they all had virtually the same number of votes, so you know St. Thomas might as well have been third. Um, same thing with Oshkosh and Whitewater, and they'll play early in the season. They'll, that, that stuff will sort itself out yep. over the course of the season, but I, I thought one thing that this poll did show is that um, it, it, there's a division in in how you pick or who or there's no clear number one necessarily. Um, and it, there's a, a sort of school of thought or different schools of thought on how you pick your number one. Um, Mary Harden Baylor got 16 top 25 votes. Mountain Union had three. Whitewater had four. Oshkosh had two. Uh, that does add up to 25. Yeah. Um, Good. And most of them went to Mary Harden Baylor, and so most of those folks, if you listen to last month's podcast, are from the Adam Turr School of First Place Voting, <laughs> which is you're the champ until there's some reason for me to believe you're not the champ. Um, I don't think you took it quite so far as right. you're the champ until someone knocks you off, because clearly, uh, or most likely. Um, Mary Harden Baylor can can be not as good as last year and still run through the the, the whole schedule uh, undefeated. So you don't really get any information until a couple weeks into the playoffs. Um, so so I mean I think he's open to moving a t- moving them off number one uh, earlier in the season. But for right now, there's no, he, that's the number one team. Pat, you said your school of thought on on how to pick a number one team is you're trying to figure out who's going to win the 2017 Stag Bowl. Yeah, perfect perfectly reasonable school of thought. 
My school of thought is, is a third school of thought, and that's just trying to figure out who is the best team based on what we know now. And I, I feel like starters back are the biggest piece of information uh, we have to work with. And I already told you what I thought about what Mountain Union has back and uh, and, and Mayor Harden-Baylor doesn't have quite as much back. Um, Oshkosh, nine starters, including Brett Casper, the quarterback on offense. St. Thomas, remember, that's a team that uh, had eight turnovers and still only lost a playoff game 38, uh, 34-31 to Oshkosh, which three points from winning the national championship. Uh, they have 13 starters back. So for me, I was very heavy on starters back. Wheaton, 19, North Central, 17. And then, uh, and then it started to get a little tougher as you got a little deeper in there because some of the teams that were really good last season, like Platteville and especially Linfield, uh, with only seven starters back and no Sam Riddle, um, you know, I struggled with with where to put them, and I, and I can't remember the last time I start uh, filed a ballot where Linfield wasn't in the top ten. Yep, and I did the same thing. This is obviously going to be a very long podcast, folks, or at least a longer than usual podcast. But I think uh, hopefully you guys find this interesting. Uh, you can continue the conversation with us on Twitter is the best way to find us. Uh, Keith is at D three Keith. I'm at D three Football. All of the hashtag conversation with the D3FB hashtag is something that we will uh, come across and and react to if necessary. If you are the mom of the Wilmington freshman, I assume, from Florida who thinks that Wilmington is going to be in the top 25 next year, hey, great. Best of luck. Um, It's about 180 spots between there and the top 25. It may be harder to get to second or third place in the OAC than it might be to get into the the top 25. But uh, there will be lots of discussion about uh, this preseason poll because as of now, it's uh, less than a day old. And by the time this podcast drops, it will still be very, very fresh in people's minds. And we uh, welcome all of that conversation. And hey, if you don't believe in yourself in the preseason, you know, why, why are you even out here, right? There you go. Exactly. Um, something else that uh, we talked about uh, briefly in a previous podcast, and we talked with uh, Muhlenberg coach Mike Donnelly in a previous podcast as well, but we did not talk about um, you know, the, uh, his diagnosis of uh, acute monocytic leukemia uh, diagnosed uh, back this past spring. Uh, you know, this is a guy who has a, uh, a long history of coaching in Division Three, and we will talk with Jeff Nahr of King's College as someone who's from the Muhlenberg coaching tree and, and coached under uh, Mike Donnelly for several years. Um, but you know, just to talk a little bit more about that here at the top of the podcast and about this very important program to uh, Keith, you know, uh, to getting screened to become a, a bone marrow donor, uh, popularly done through the Be the Match program. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk about that uh, uh, over the course of the past six years or so. Rowan, for example, football very much into uh, very big proponents of Be the Match, and one of their players uh, donated bone marrow, and then was a also in that same year was a, a finalist for the Gilardi Trophy, that sort of thing. It's um, I'm just trying to raise awareness. I have to raise my own awareness too in the course of this conversation. But uh, you know, I just want to make sure that people understand that you can help anybody. It's not just about helping uh, Mike Donnelly. You could be a match for anybody, and there's a. It's it's pretty painless to become uh, to get screened. So I, I just want to I want to put that out there. And I don't even really know. I didn't have a polished way to get this or how to throw it to you, Keith. Well, you also hit the the two points I really wanted to hit, which was one uh, that it's fairly painless. It's not like uh, even even 
give him give him blood, which is somewhat painless, but it kind of always I always thought that was weird. Um, this is a, a, a real, uh, you know, it's all it's, it's like being an organ donor, right? You don't have to you don't have to give anything until they need you. So in, until uh, it, and when when a, when the starting quarterback from from Oshkosh can be a bone marrow don- donor and still play uh, and lead his team to the to the championship um, game, then you know it's it's not something that's going to put uh, any of us uh, out of commission either. So um, I, and and the other thing I wanted to hit, which you kind of mentioned too, is that this isn't new to D three. Um, so many D three teams have these um, civic or community projects that uh, that they align the teams with, and that's just part of you know the the D three ethos. Um, you know, for some, some, like the first time I ever heard of wounded warrior was through Hobart. And the first time I ever heard of be the match was through, um, was, I, I guess it was Rowan, but I, I don't think Rowan's definitely, they don't definitely don't have a monopoly on it because it's, it's been brought up and it's been the, uh, the, the rallying cry for, um, more than one program over the course of, of the years. But, um, it just strikes me that. Um, it was such a big story during the Stag Bowl last season because uh, the quarterback, Brett Casper, uh, ended up being the match for a girl named Phoenix Bridegroom, I, I feel like I think that her name was. Uh, she'd had leukemia and it, and it um, came back and, and she ended up kind of aligning herself with the team. And, and it's such a good experience for, for college kids to realize their own, I don't, I don't know if mortality is the right way to put it, but to realize that, you know, you're young and strong and you got all this whole life ahead of you. And then you see a, a college football program, bring a kid in that, that um, has cancer. We've seen it in the uh, courage bowl. We've seen it at merchant Marine with Mikey, but um, it's a very humbling experience. And it's something that's so simple um, for, for these guys to do that. I think it's probably uh, it's fair for us to r- raise awareness about it. And it's probably something that um, Mike Donnelly as a coach of a team, it feels like he's giving, he's giving back. And then all of a sudden now he's the one who, who, who needs the help. And, and uh, he's got all these uh, players and, and coaches who've worked and played alongside him who, uh, who are wishing the best for him. Um, a couple of, uh, a couple of notes. One, uh, as I'm looking through, uh, they rec, uh, they recommend slash request uh, people between the ages of 18 and 44 get tested. And, um, uh, Mike Donnelly is going to uh, step aside from coaching for the year. Corey Goff, who is the uh, athletic director, as uh, was an assistant coach, uh, uh, offensive coordinator for football for several years, played football at Susquehanna. He will be uh, the interim football coach for this season as well. Best of luck and well wishes to Mike Donnelly and to his family and to the Muhlenberg Mules family as well. One other thing that has uh, kind of been a, a running thing over the course of the last couple of years is that uh, the uh, prolif- not proliferation, because that's not really uh, quite the right term, but the continued growth, I guess, in postseason all-star games, bowl games at the Division Three level. Uh, this past week, the Liberty League and Empire 8 announced that their top non-NCAA playoff qualifier will be, uh, uh, will be facing off against each other in a New York State Bowl, which is... Uh, something that uh, there's already going to be so much crossover between the Liberty League and Empire Eight uh, this year that uh, um, you know it, it might revive talk of the uh, of the uh, New York State Super League. But regardless, um, teams kind of continue to edge away from the ECAC. And the only thing, Keith, is we don't seem to see 
schools from outside that footprint or conferences from outside that footprint really make that next step where I've, I've heard people talk about it and think that it at some point might come? Well, the one thing it reminds me of is the um, the interconference challenges too, where it's um, yeah, true. Where the, these these sort of natural matches between uh, at one point it was the MAC and the PAC, MAC and the NJAC, it was the NAC. It's hard to pronounce, but the NACC and the MIAA, the Michigan Conference, um, these teams had a basically an open date to fill, and to for the entire conference. Um, could could fill an open day in week two of the season. They'd each play each other. They'd play like schools. So first place would play first, ninth would play ninth, or you know if the numbers didn't work out, they'd figure it out. But this reminds me of that in the sense that it's such a natural fit for the Liberty League and Empire 8. And, and even though we don't pay a lot of attention to the bowl games because we're so uh, deep into the playoffs, um, at that point, I think it's it's such a it's a good thing for a seven and three team, eight and two team to have one more week to play, um, and it just makes sense. And I think it will probably uh, catch on as conferences realize, hey, you know, it, first of all, this is an opportunity is something that we can do, and there's probably for most of D three because it's so concentrated in the Midwest, Mid Atlantic, and Northeast, there's a natural partner for uh, for these bowls in a lot of cases as well. So I don't know where that leaves the ECAC because they've sort of tried to step their their game up the past couple of years by doing the D3 football fest where they tried to do all the bowl games at one site over the course of a weekend. Uh, I was at Franklin Field last year, which is a kind of iconic venue in Philadelphia. Um, but there's more Northeastern Conference than there's ever been. And, uh, and these bowl games are, are a good thing, even though, like I said, we won't spend a lot of time on them because we're just so focused on playoffs at that point. Keith, the other thing that we're working on is kickoff. Uh, that comes out uh, Tuesday, August 22nd. Is that a Tuesday? Is that today? Yeah, yeah. Let's not count right now the number of days that is because that's coming maybe a little bit faster than we'd like. But um, I know I've talked to uh, three or four of the 30 coaches I expect to talk to, so I know that uh, we're, we're right in the thick of it right now. Yeah, and, and we'll probably do another podcast as yeah. we get closer to, to getting kickoff out the door. I suppose that, for those first-time listeners, we should explain what kickoff is, too. I meant to do that. that that's a fair point. So each preseason, we put out a preseason edition 10 days before the first uh, game kicks off, or that was the goal anyway, maybe nine days this year. Um, so and it Those was Thursday th- night games, you know, it happens. Yeah. So it it was co- the concept in 2005 when we first did kickoff was, you know, why have some uh, Division One focus magazine put out something in May uh, that has a, just a teeny bit of information when we can basically round up a team of writers, call every D3 coach get the, and get the latest uh, who, who they have coming back basically in August, who shows up to camp. Uh, in theory, and um, have the most up-to-date information by people who really follow D3, who care about it, who, and who are actually in touch with the coaches in each conference. So we put together what's a comprehensive preseason edition. It's the only thing we charge for all year, and it sort of funds the rest of our work uh, and the rest of our travel throughout the season. Uh, it's a big deal to us, but I think also sort of symbolically uh, across D3, it's a big deal because when kickoff comes out, 
on, on August 22nd. Uh, it sort of signifies that, man, the season really is around the corner. And then you just have 10 days to dive into it. Read all the feature stories, the rankings, predictions. Uh, we have you know, Q&As with players and, and sort of a couple of fun elements so that it's not just like uh, win, win, win. And then also, of course, you and I rank the entire division, which is creeping up on 250 teams. So we'll go from one to, is it 249 this year, Pat? 249, I guess, thanks, I suppose, to Maranatha Baptist for dropping football and we don't get to 250 yet. But it's going to be there pretty soon. So anyway, that's what kickoff is. We'll talk more about it in August. We have some interviews we probably should get to in, in this podcast. But uh, <laughs> kickoff is, is, is a ton of fun. Uh, check it out. We'll be obviously promoting it on the the site front, and uh, it's one it's one time per year when you as a reader get to go way outside your comfort zone. Obviously, you'll dive in first and and read about your team and your conference and what the, what those predictions are like. But it's just a kind of across the board smorgasbord, so you can um, get to know what, who your future opponents, who your future playoff opponents might be as well. And, uh, and just read some good, you know, human interest stories from across D3 as well. And we greatly appreciate your $10, your $12, your $15, uh, however much you want to give for kickoff. Uh, we really appreciate your contributions in helping keep this, uh, this enterprise afloat. Uh, we also would, uh, like to point out at this point that the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by nobody, but, uh, you could join that group of people who, uh, express their love of Division Three football, their love of the D3Football.com podcast, and help sponsor this thing, help keep our uh, help keep our virtual doors virtually open, uh, even though the literal doors are closed to keep the mosquitoes out in my part of the country or to keep the 98-degree weather out in Keith's part of the country. You could be heard here right now. We would be waxing poetic about your product, your service, and you know, coaches, especially this time of season, uh, and athletic directors from across the country are listening to this as they are thinking about now their purchases for next year, their trips for 2018 there you know when is it that they need to replace that turf that's uh, coming up on the eight years old or ten years old or whatever their lifespan is when are they going to go upgrade video board when are they going to upgrade the locker rooms these are the people who could be spending money with your brand and you want to reach them and we have the vehicle so drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3football.com and we'll do it Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Luther coach Aaron Hafner, entering his fifth season as head coach of the Norse. They've got some interesting things going on down here in Decorah, Iowa, which is why I've made the trip down to record this interview. First of all, coach, the uh, the, the most interesting thing, I guess, or the reason that you guys have been on the radar here in the offseason uh, is not because of a coaching change or any fancy stuff on your schedule. It's the fancy stuff that's going to be going down on your field here coming up for the fall. Yeah, we're really excited. We started a, a turf project right after the first of the year, and really uh, initially it was just an idea to get turf, and it kind of blew up and expanded, and uh, next thing you know, we're uh, putting down blue turf. So we're really excited about just a change more than anything else and the excitement level that is brought to our football program. Blue turf, of course, synonymous with uh, Boise State, and I, and I know that that's by design. So what did it take for you guys to get the necessary permissions or sign-offs from the folks up in Idaho? Well, they do have a trademark. Boise State does on the uh, on, on the blue turf, and um, so we just had to get permission from them um, through their athletic department, and 
um, you know, essentially uh, they, they gave us the, the uh, right to do the blue turf and with some restrictions on how we market it because um, they don't want uh, the competition of, of so, some of the things they name it, some nicknames, different things. But uh, overall, the process was very smooth. They're very generous in, in the emails and things that we uh, corresponded with them. But uh, just a great opportunity to be able to market ourselves and, and just like Boise State has for several years. My family and friends would tell people that I'm not very good at describing colors, but you've got kind of a, uh, and it's an omnipresent uh, shade of blue here at Luther. I'm guessing I would call that somewhat a royal blue, or am I missing that entirely? No, no, no it is a royal blue, and um, our, our, our field will match exactly what uh, our school colors are in the royal blue, and uh, you'll see some white end zones, um, which is another school color with a, with a, a little bit of black around the edge as an accent color. So it, it's going to be a little bit different from Boise because our playing surface will be blue. Um, and then the outside turf around the, the sidelines and, and, and the D zones and different things like that will be green turf. So um, not, not, not completely not completely blue, but the playing surface will be blue. Um, it's it's going to be very sharp. That does sound interesting. Um, I'm just curious as to why green around the outside. What is it? What does that matter? Well, we have a, a blue track, so um, it, it was it, it was a little bit uh, the blue on blue was a little bit much blue, and and we we have another project going on right now with our tennis courts, and they're going to be blue, and they're just right by uh, just uh, west of our football field. So uh, the blues, you know, with fading of the track and different things, there was a little bit of clashing in colors. So. I think the green will um, just kind of offset the the blueness. I guess that would have would would have been the look from the valley. So it, it it's one of those things where um, we had all kinds of designs. At, at the end of the day, it, it was one that fit best for us. It's a surface that's going to go really well with the style of offense you guys run. Now um, I know you have had you've had the option here for the four years that you've been here. Do you feel that's been a success over the the course of your time here so far? It, it has. I, I I think it's been a great way for us to re uh, to recruit a little bit differently, um, to recruit a, a different type of player um, that maybe you know you uh, you see the spread type offenses. So everybody's looking for the same type of offensive lineman and quarterback, and 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 maybe that that uh that star tailback that you're looking for and um we're not looking for those guys necessarily we're looking for a little different player and um it, it gives us a unique um uniqueness um, from the offensive side of the ball that allows us to recruit maybe an undersized offensive lineman that's a really good football player that that, that may not have enough hype to go play in the spread offense and pass that and do those things so um and and you know we we we've recruited across the nation since I've been here, and it allows us to go find those option schools in in uh, Iowa, Minnesota, and and in Wisconsin. But also um, we have a young quarterback um, from Florida. So um, you know we, we we find those find those option offenses, and it, it gives us an opportunity to get them up to Decor, Iowa. I'm kind of mentally scanning the map as you're talking. I'm, I'm trying to think about what the nearest non-scholarship option offense is and i'm i'm kind of coming up blank at the moment well that's a good question um uh, i i don't know that i could could really come up with one either um i i know there's some some d2 schools out there out east that run it but uh you know it, it's primarily ran within the military institutions you know you look at uh our, obviously army navy uh, georgia tech paul johnson was from uh, from 
the Naval Academy, so he took that offense down there. Um, the Citadel, you know, they've done a, probably one of the best jobs in the nation running it, and they're a one double A school. They won their conference last year, but um, not too many schools run the option anymore. It's a common kind of old uh, you know old school type of offense and 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 a very unselfish offense which is a little bit different than a lot of the spread concepts and um, it really fits uh, my coaching style and it fits the personality of our players I have to say before we move on that uh, the the guy the teams in the northeast there's a good number of them that run it at the division three level but if I left out Washington and Lee which uh, you know around the nation columnist Adam Turr played at and graduated from I would not hear the end of it plus people would say did you even listen to the last podcast that you just did and of course uh, yes I listened uh, I listened to what uh, Adam was saying when you're talking about uh, unselfishness option obviously is a system where a lot of guys could get touches on any given afternoon when you're making out your two deep how many guys do you think you have on your two deep who you feel comfortable with getting touches on a on a Saturday afternoon well it, it's interesting because you know we play one quarterback you know and throughout the year they're probably going to get banged up at some point because they carry the ball so much so we better have a second one that's ready to go mm-hmm. probably going to get more playing time out of a out of a backup quarterback than most offenses um, you know we rotate our fullbacks um, every other series um, we play four to six slots in a game. Um, we rotate personnel with our wide receivers. So, uh, again, we play we play numerous players um, throughout the course of a game by design, um, and it, I, I think it gives us. Uh, I mean, I did you know to to play more players, um, to give more kids an opportunity, and to uh, keep us fresh throughout the season as well. So, um, you know, personnel wise, yeah, it, it's one of those things where we have to have great depth at those positions because of how much our slot backs go in motion. They run a lot during a game, and um, so, so we have to keep them fresh throughout the season. Outside of the you know the top ten or so programs in Division Three, there's generally, of course, a, a real cyclical nature in college football in general. Um, and we've noticed uh, over the course of the time that we've been watching Springfield in Massachusetts, they do so much better when they have a quarterback coming back for a second season and even a third season as a starter. What's the learning curve? How long does it really take uh, an option quarterback to? get to the point where they are at their maximum efficiency, I guess. You know, I, I think their freshman year, it is a learning curve. And, and we're fortunate that coming into this year, to the 2017 season, um, we're going to have a quarterback that started for two seasons. Um, and uh, to, to be honest with you, he, he was a third-string kid for us as a, uh, as a freshman. He ran the option in, in high school, but there is a learning curve. I mean, it's different. And I, I think that experience of being able to check plays at the line of scrimmage and do all those things at a high level, take care of the football, and understand the value of, of possessing the clock and, and time management and different things, um, having that leader in that position is very key. And, um, you know, when we don't have to bring a freshman in, and bank on them playing for us a whole bunch. It's a big, big advantage for us, and and um, and you know that that goes back to a little bit why we recruit the nation for for quarterbacks because if they do come out of an option system, I, I, I guess the transition is a little bit easier, um, but uh, it, it does take time just like any other position. A lot of programs you'll see, you know, they bring in five or six freshman quarterbacks, and eventually some of those guys will be safeties, and maybe some will play wide receiver. An option quarterback who isn't going to make the top three, where do they end up? What kind of position do you end up playing them in? It's interesting you ask that question because we're going going to have upwards of four, maybe five starters on the defensive side that we brought in as option quarterbacks here at Luther. So, um, you know, we we, we do the same thing a lot of other people do. And 
um, it, it's one of those things where they're good athletes, so you got to get them on the field. And and for us, you know, we're if you're going to run the ball and you're going to make a commitment to run, you better make a commitment to play good defense and and and. And be good in a kicking game. So we're going to take our best athletes, and a lot of times those are your quarterbacks. And and for us, you could probably it's um, even a little bit greater of an athlete because they're an option kid, and they probably played some defense. So we typically move them to, to the defensive side of the ball, whether it's in the secondary or linebacker. Um, when you're uh, and you were talking about this, you just barely alluded to it, so I want to explore it a little bit. As an option team, a team that runs a lot of clock, if you go down a couple of touchdowns early, how do you deal or how do you help the kids deal with um, you know despondency that you're not an offense that's built to come back quickly like a, a spread offense would be? Well, I, I, I think that's a misnomer. I mean, it, it's one of those things where we you know we're not going to be just if we're down two scores we're not going to just start chucking it all over the place that's when the score ends up where you end up getting beat by five touchdowns and it's about being patient it's about uh, trusting what we do um and but you have to teach the kids to know that right the kids are going to come come in with the same kind of mentality that the general college football fan i has i think about sure sure and 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 i think it's just the culture that we've set and our kids understand that um, we need to we need to be in the game at halftime, you know, and um, we we need to make good adjustments at halftime and and be within a couple scores and and just don't just panic and start chucking the ball over the place because because we're probably not going to be able to protect and do those things because that's not what we do and um, and hopefully get a turnover whether it's in on defense or special teams to get yourself back in the ball game but uh, just being patient and and buying into our system is exactly what uh, the culture we've created at Luther College. So for um, a long time, the predominant power in this conference was Central, and then uh, it was uh, Dubuque for a couple of years. Warburg won a couple of titles. Uh, Dubuque won again. Coe had an amazing season last year. But it seems like there's a lot of churn at the top of this conference. Is there something about? Is there something endemic to the Iowa conference that makes it possible for multiple teams to be in contention every year? Well, it's very competitive. It's probably. From top to bottom, I think the most competitive conference I've ever coached in, um, and, and you know, if, if if you even go, you know, look at the 2017 season, and, and here for too long, we'll be ranking the the Iowa conference. I mean, it, it's going to be a tight race again, and um, you, you know, Co lost some really good players, but they're going to be solid on defense again. So it, it's one of those things where um, you know, the, I, I think. You know, you look at those top teams that you mentioned, um, they've probably been a little ahead of the game with with the big-time athletes, you know, the speed. And, but, but, but the thing is, I think, with, with a lot of the teams that haven't been up there is we're getting closer to that, you know. And um, it, it's, it's just a competitive league, and we all recruit a lot of the same kids, um, the Iowa kids, and a lot of us are going to Illinois or Minnesota to recruit. So, um you know, I I knew need to mention this too is the coaching in this league is phenomenal, and and not just in the programs you mentioned, but you know throughout the whole conference and um, and from year in to year out, it, it a lot of times that top team comes down to an injury. You know, to to be honest with you, an injury or two, and um, Co just made a heck of a run last year, stayed healthy, and the year before that, uh, you know, you look at Dubuque and Wartburg had some great teams. If they would have had an injury, you know, it may have been a different season for them. So um, it's D3 football, the depth at some positions isn't always there. And um, I think that's the difference right now of who's going to win our conference or not. Fast forward two months or even slow forward, whatever it takes. You know, envision that first home opener on September 9th against St. Olaf. You've got the brand new turf. 
what are you expecting to see? What kind of atmosphere? That sort of thing. Well, it's going to be an exciting day. Um, we're, we, you know, we'll do the field dedication in the morning, and um, you know, we I, I just sat down with our assistant athletic director yesterday, and we have a great day planned. Um, we're going to do a community day to get the community out. Um, we'll do a it, along with the field dedication. We'll bring back all the uh, um, generous donors that we've had for the field and recognize them. Um, throughout the game, um, our our lead donor will be an honorary captain for us. So, so, so there's going to be a lot of alumni and um, the decor community will come out. I'm sure it'll, it, it'll be a great day just to, to open up our field. It must be helpful to have a, a, a rival in the house that day, too. And, and it is. You know, um, the, the, this rivalry is kind of the – I always call it the Norwegian rivalry. Um, very similar schools, Scandinavian backgrounds, great music programs, you know, that, that the school utilizes for recruitment and um, just top-notch um, throughout the country in, in, in the music uh, field. But, uh, um, you know, I think the before I got here, St. Olaf had been a, a beat us nine years in a row, and we beat them for four years in a row since I've been here. But it's just a great competitive game. Last year went in overtime, and um, and we opened up their field last year. So, um, and, and Coach Killian and and his new staff will. Uh, I'm sure come down here and try to spoil our opener. So it's just a great non-conference rival. I think anytime you can set those up and at any level of football, when you have a non-conference rival game, it just creates a fun environment early in the season. Keith, obviously the blue turf is a draw for this conversation, but you and I have had this, that conversation so many times about the second-year option quarterbacks that I, I wanted to get Hafner's take on it as well. Yeah, and he actually had a really good take on it. But I, I thought the fascinating part of that interview for me was how Luther had to go through Boise State for approval on the blue turf. Yeah. I, I did not know that the trademark granted Boise State that kind of power, but it's nice to see they're benevolent. Uh, nobody's going to confuse a D3 or D1 program in Idaho with a D3 in Iowa, so it kind of makes sense. And, uh, you know, since podcasts aren't at all visual, you should Google a picture of the new field. Um, it's slick. It's not an eyesore at all. It's uh, it's got white end zones. It's got a black rim around it, and then it's surrounded by now. I'm about to say natural green turf. <laughs> Na maybe a natural sure. color. Yeah. But anyway, it, for, for the way it's uh, all put together, it actually instead of being kind of like an, uh, a super bright ah yeah. kind of feeling, it actually looks really slick. And you should you should check it out sometime when you're not driving. Uh, or running on the treadmill. Right. Both of those things are true. Uh, we'll have a photo of it on the podcast page. Uh, we'll include some of the blue turf on the front page of the website as well. So, uh, but, uh, you know, not unless the turf company wants to uh, buy a takeover, in which case we'll put blue turf like all around the uh, website. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, anyway. Um, Iowa Conference, as we mentioned in the in the interview, is pretty balanced, or at least uh, you know, in any given year, there's a few teams that could win it. That's not to say Luther could work in, into that mix this year because they were two and six in the league last year, but they did beat Warburg, so it, you know, at least you'd think they could have an impact on who wins the league in 2017. Well, every year in kickoff, one of the fun elements is uh, we do lastly 20 questions or we just call it predict this where we yeah. uh one of the questions for our panel of experts is um pick a conference that's generally impossible to predict and predict the winner and uh many years it's the odak or the mac but the the iowa conference is one of the ones that comes to mind many years as being one of the tougher conferences to predict because uh ever since as you mentioned in the interview the era of central or maybe Central and Wartburg being the, the dominant or two dominant teams in the conference. It's really been um, almost everybody 
you know, Luther is one of the few teams, uh, maybe along with Loris and, and Buena Vista, who haven't had uh, the, a run of success or, or a real, uh, real good season. Um, but it's very competitive, and, and that's every coach. I mean, literally almost every interview, a coach either says it's one of the best conferences in Division Three, yeah. or you got to come to play every Saturday, which is tr- not always true in a lot of places. Even though every coach probably believes it uh, when he says it, but I think it is uh, often. Fairly true in, in, in Iowa. Hey, bud, you got a minute? Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's random podcast time. I think that uh, the stuff we did last time with the map really didn't work. What do you think? Yeah, I think it took a little bit too long. Yeah, that, that was pretty messy. There's way too much country, and all the schools are uh, compacted in a, a pretty tight geographic space. So I was thinking a better way to pull a random school would be to use a random number generator. Do you have one in mind? Convenient. I have one open right now. Oh, fun. Well, why don't we then currently select a random number between 1 and 249. 249 Division Three football schools this season. Okay. You ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. We've chosen... 114. All right. I scroll down the list and find that school 114 is King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. We have not talked to King's College at all uh, in the history of this podcast. So I appreciate that. Thanks once again for your uh, randomization and help. Okay. Now on the Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Jeff Nahr, the head coach of King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And uh, Coach, I guess before we get too deep into the Monarchs and the Mac, I have to ask, as a, a longtime former assistant to Mike Donnelly at Muhlenberg, how you took the news of Coach Donnelly's leukemia diagnosis that he would have to step aside from coaching for now in order to fight it? I mean, it's a shock. Um, you know, he called me and, and then, uh, you know, told me you just never think it's going to be someone, you know, you know or someone you're close to and, you know, the work ethic and the, and the time and, you know, the passion a coach puts into, you know, the season, um, you know, it just seems a you know, have endless energy and, and, you know, Tyler's work ethic, you don't think anything's going to, you know, stop him or, or stand in his way. So kind of, you know, it takes you a step back and you know, reevaluate everyone's, you know, you know, human and, and it can happen to anyone and affect anyone. And, um, you know, so I was you know, definitely very, you know, surprised and, and, and saddened to hear that. Uh, you know, Donnelly's a guy who's got a big coaching tree, and we wrote about this uh, at some point last season. But you're one of many who played or coached under him, guys who are now head coaches, both in Division Three and beyond. What did you learn from him? How did he influence you? What did you take away from that time? I took a, a, you know, a lot from, from Coach Donnelly. I mean, basically, you know, my wife and, and kids allow me to pursue college football as a, as a profession, but you know, I'm the head football coach at, at King's College because of my time and mentorship you know, through, through coach Donnelly. I mean, he sat down, um, when I was a part-time coach and asked me what my goals were and aspirations and ambitions and, you know, told them, you know, I would like to try to be a full-time, you know, college coach. And, um, he, he, you know, he talked about, you know, the challenges and, you know, the things in the way there and just to find a, you know, be happy and, you know, where you're at. And then that's what you wanted to kind of pursue it. And, you know, it worked out that I was able to go from part-time to full-time at his staff. And, and then he mentored me, uh, you know, to be a full-time coach and what it took to do the, the job there and, you know, kind of the things you don't, you don't know till you kind of get into that role. And, you know, then I got to be the OC and again, the groom me and, and mentored me to try to be the best OC that I could. And then, you know, as I started to be, you know, he felt I was getting ready to be a head coach. He would talk to me, you know, and give me head coach type responsibilities to help, you know, bolster Muhlenberg's program and put me in position to, you know, to become a head coach. So he's been, 
um, you know, the ultimate mentor from, from the, you know, the time I got on Milwaukee's campus to I left for, for 11 years. 11 years there. Now you're entering year seven at Kings. Took over a uh, pro- my eighth year. My eighth season. Actually. Eight. Eight seasons yeah. at Kings. You, you took over a program that was, you know, kind of basically bottoming out after having some success. Some of the progress since then has been slow, but it, it does seem like the Monarchs are moving forward. What do you guys need to do to get up into the next echelon in the MAC? Um, you know, the one you know thing is, um, I think just be a little more, you know, consistent within ourselves. Um, you know, as we go back and you know, look at the last couple of years, like we talked about, this group that just graduated kind of got us in the a realm of relevancy where we can, you know, go in the field and, and every Saturday have a chance. And you know, we got, but we got to execute and and take care of, you know, our our job and our, our business. And sometimes when you go back through the film and you look at it. You know, we didn't do that. We were inconsistent or we didn't quite make a play or we allowed them to make a play. And when you're playing some of the teams in our conference and the talent level that they have, you know, you, you got to be able to take advantage of an opportunity when it presents itself, not beat yourself, put yourself in, in bad situations. And, you know, that's kind of what we did. And if we can, you know, stop doing that and do that less often, it'll give us a chance to, you know, to, to take, you know, the, to beat and compete and, you know, get up there with the teams that are traditionally at the top of the MAC. Yeah, and that top tier, of course, pretty tough. Uh, Delaware Valley, Widener have been there pretty consistently over maybe even the past decade or longer. Uh, Stevenson has launched its way into that upper echelon, and, and Albright is usually there as well. Yeah, all those you've you've mentioned, I think they they've all taken a turn since I've been here of, of winning the conference, and um, it's kind of you know you know changed from there. But they're the the top uh, you know four teams you know right now, and, and then um, you know they're they're well coached. Uh, they they have you know talent, and they they you know, dot the I's, cross the T's in all three phases of the game. So, you know, our, our kids, are, um, you know, you got to go there and you got to be ready to play. And that's the anyway in our conference. I mean, I think top to bottom, you know, the gap is is closed that it doesn't, um, if you don't come to play on a Saturday, um, you know, anybody can beat anybody in, in our conference. But they're definitely the four teams that have, you know, been at the top and are traditionally strong every year. And um, we keep working hard and focusing on what they're doing and, and focusing on kind of what we need to do, um, you know, to play solid football to be able to compete and possibly beat those guys. And the conference continues to grow. Uh, Misericordia added football, you know, in over the last several years, you're part of the state as well. Uh, Alvernia is starting up a program in 2018 and we hear pretty consistent talk about another Mac school looking to add it as well. Um, you know, what's it like having to, you know, participating, competing, uh, and then competing for recruits against such a large conference as well? Yeah, I mean, well, for the recruits, I mean, I think there's enough, you know, bodies you kind of get um, who you're supposed to get out there, but just make sure you, you know, do your homework, um, you know, you know, sooner and be real diligent, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's when you go to recruiting, uh, make sure you're getting the right guys. But so there's, you know, plenty of quality kids, you know, you know, out there, but obviously um, you, you got to stay on it because there is, you know, with more schools and, you know, and pockets there that if you, you know, just think, you know, because you got, you know, a couple of kids out of that school that they're naturally going to look at you the next year. Um, you're going to be sadly mistaken. So you got to put the work in, you know, you know, every day, every year from, from there. Um, you know, it is, it's, you know, this, you know, state of Pennsylvania, I think, you know, the high schools play great football, um, you know, so to have a conference that's, you know, primarily Pennsylvania based and, you know, add schools into our conference, I think just helps our profile and, and, you know, the mid Atlantic areas profile of, of uh, small college football, you know, can, you know, grow from there. Uh, you guys are in a situation like a, a lot of Division three schools, but uh, you know certainly not ma- the majority, where your game day is off campus, right? Uh, football stadium is not right there where you know the the resident students 
come upon it on Saturday and end up at your games. What, what's the struggle like for you guys to get uh, kids to come out and get out there to get to your games? Um, you know, I think for the most part, our kids uh, do support you know us. We get a good, pretty good amount of students to the game. The school does a, a good job of having um, you know cookouts or other activities to entice the kids. Plus, they provide uh, you know transportation they needed to get the you know the students you know there. Um, and then obviously, the better the product, um, you know, the more you know, then the students are going to come you know to that. Um, you know, this year you know, we always play our second ever night game. You know, that'll generate a lot of crowd. And our next home game is homecoming, and homecoming's been very popular and, and, and it's grown over the last few years to you know a huge event, one of the best events we do. So that gets the kids you know fired up, energized, and that kind of carries the, you know you know the re- the rest of the way. So we have those two. Then we play Wilkes at home. Yep. You know that that's a self starter. Uh, you know, from there, but the school, our, our activities office, you know, does a great job um, because a lot of times we'll finish playing and then soccer will play a game after us. So they do a lot of things that tie in both events, you know, with our students. Um, and so I've been very pleased with the attendance of the community and also the students, even though we are an off-campus facility. That's a rivalry that uh, some years we talk about because it's uh, more relevant. Some years it's not as high on the radar. But you know, tell us a little bit more about the the Kings and Wilkes rivalry. You know, what? you know, I think it's one of those rivalries that um, you know, is very unique because I mean, there's not. I know a lot of schools are a town over. You know, at, you know, when I was at Muhlenberg and Moravian, it's separated. You know, Bethlehem and Allentown border each other. Yeah. I mean, we're two schools that are separated by three blocks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, that's um, I think you know, very unique uh, from that deal. And with that, there's a lot of um. Uh, ties that, that bind each school to, together. I mean, you know, our president is a Wilkes alum. Uh, you know, the former mayor uh, of Wilkes-Barre, Tom Layton, he's a Kings grad, but some of his children are Kings grads, some are Wilkes grads, some of his families, you know, both. Um, so you see a lot of that where people have ties to both schools, and then obviously you have your, you know, 100% allegiances to both. And then the kids, especially, you know, because again, like you talk about the recruiting, um, you know, us and Wilkes, we're recruiting in the same grounds. And especially when you get local kids, they grew up playing in you know in youth football against each other or on the same team sometimes, playing each other in high school. Um, you know, then you know there may be teammates that go to each school, so it has a huge local you know flavor. And again, like I said, three blocks apart, so it's a it's a special uh, you know rivalry, very very unique. And it's also unique, and I think it was started because of of uh, of, of Coach Sheptock and and Coach um, you know Manello was that they were really good friends, and then it's a rivalry where for one day out of the year for for three hours. You know, you want to you know beat your your opponent, but then there's a lot of joint you know activities that the schools do, and even football. We participate in a in a, in a march uh, against women's you know domestic violence, and us and Wilkes participated in that you know together. So it's kind of a you know unique re- rivalry where you know it's not that hatred 365 you know all, all the time like some schools are. It's just that three hours you want to go out there and you know kind of beat your buddy you know and have that bragging rights uh, you know from there and then the fact that. It's three blocks apart. It's the playing for the mayor's trophy, kind of who runs the town for that year. Uh, it makes it a real special, special game. And, you know, for the most part, six of my seven years, it's kind of been like almost a one score, you know, type type of a game. I wouldn't have thought that uh, Kings would be allowed to hire a president who had been at Wilkes. That's, uh, that's and, impressive. Uh, well, he said our, our president, his, his line is why he went to Wilkes and, you know, Father Ryan went to Wilkes because he didn't want to take theology here at Kings. That's his uh, his, his rationale from from that deal. You know, that puzzled me, you know, kind of as well. But uh, that's a question that's you know a little above my pay grade. Uh, should Scranton add football then to just to get you all together again? <laughs> yeah, that'd be pretty cool if if they did. I I don't know. I don't know if they've you know one time. I think back way back in the day, I might have heard they 
they've contemplated it, but I think um, I don't think that's on the horizon there for them. Uh, who are the names we're going to hear about for you guys on the field this year? You know, one um, from an offense standpoint, you know, I firmly believe you go as your quarterback goes. And, and last year, our quarterback, you know, had a breakout season. Zach Wayhead um, set a lot of records. Uh, you know, for in season, um, he's he's really a student of the game. Spends a lot of time in our office. Uh, wants to be the best, you know, quarterback that he can be. Wants to understand our offense as well as he can. And, and he had a great, you know, junior season, and he's following that from there. So I anticipate him again being able to lead us, uh, you know, from from an offensive standpoint. And then um, we have two, uh, you know, receivers coming back that'll be seniors: Tyler Maroney and, and Marcus Miller. Kind of they're you know the odd couple. I mean, Tyler Maroney's like six four, uh, runs real well, talk. Marcus Miller's a five seven, five eight, you know, kid. So they kind of do different things, but they're really Students of the game, um, you know, understand their offense, you know, work really hard to, to get open, work really hard at blocking uh, to make our offense go. And then, you know, Ronnie Ippolite is um, going to be a two-time captain for us. Uh, you know, he's anchored offensive line for, for three and a half years. So we're expecting him to, you know, have a, have a great, you know, senior season from, from that deal. And then, and then defensively, um, you know, our middle linebacker, Bruce Damon's back. I mean, he led the conference and I think tackles for a loss was out there in sacks and he's just an explosive, um, athletic, you know, player. And we're hoping that, you know, his speed and athleticism in the middle of our defense, um, we, you know, will be, will be really solid for us for, for another year. And then up front, uh, Jacoby Forsman, you know, has been a great, you know, D lineman for us, worked really hard as, you know, probably the best pass rushing technique that we have, uh, which is what he needed to prove upon because he's been a great run stopper. So hoping he can get to the quarterback. And then, you know, on the third level, Pretty talented. Jake Manetti has been back there, you know, as a safety force for for over three years. Um, Trevor Hill is going to be a rising sophomore. Um, he did a great job. He was he had two picks in the in the Wilkes game. Um, was our rookie of the year last year. He's understands our defense and kind of gets us set up from a you know free safety you know standpoint. And then we have you know a senior corner uh, Justin Foster, you know, who can you know play with uh, you know play with anybody uh, from that deal. So we feel um, we have some good you know experience in this in the secondary. Bruce was as athletic and explosive as anybody's going to have, you know, and then Jacoby's just that, you know, silent, strong, you know, work ethic, lunch pail kind of guy you want on the D-line. Backtracking into something Jeff Nar said pretty early on about Kings getting into the realm of relevancy in the MAC, I can see a lot of Division Three football programs who can understand that feeling. Yeah, it's another thing I find fascinating, especially during these off-season podcasts, is that there's this vast middle of D3 between the Misericordias and the Mount Unions where men make careers of coaching teams that maybe in some years or they go seven and three or six and four and they enjoy their life and, and they raise men and they, you know, they're, I mean, you hear coaches say it pretty frequently that, uh, you know, we're trying to raise husbands and fathers, not just good football players. And sometimes I feel like we underexplore that, that part of D3, the part in which most of us frankly exist where, some, you know, some years we might be four and six, some years we might be six and four, seven and three. Uh, I've started to coach my daughter's softball teams over the past couple of years. And more than ever, I can really relate to when coaches say that they care about developing their players and watching them grow into the best they can be as much as the winning or as much as I mean, I think we all love winning and the feeling it creates. But I was listening to Coach Nar talk about his team being more consistent. And I recalled from the month before the Dylan Hecker interview where uh he was he was saying, you know, he sounded almost disappointed that that Oshkosh had had gone to the stag ball and lost, and that they were going back into the weight room really motivated. And and I was sort of like, uh, you know, no matter how hard you work, 
uh, things don't go according to plan for most teams, and it, and it doesn't invalidate the experience, right? No, those teams don't have anything to apologize for, whether it's uh, Oshkosh or a, or a Kings, for or you know whether they were three points from a national championship or, or otherwise. You get the most out of the student athletes on your roster. You grow young men, um, and they get to experience the exhilaration of playing tackle football. And even if it doesn't in result doesn't result in as many wins as you want. You graduate a class, you recruit another class, you line up and, and do it again. So, so yeah, I, I got all of that out of uh, the random interview. Is that just me or do other listeners' minds uh, wander philosophically during the podcast? Uh, I don't know. I, I can only tell you, even though we've only done this random draw thing twice now, I love them just because it's a good opportunity to dig into a program. Uh, like you said, there's so many of these teams in the middle. Um, you know, Usually we know the storyline already when we look to talk with a coach or a player this time of year. It's kind of good to go in the opposite direction and say, hey, here's a school. You know, it's one of those schools, whether it's Norwich or Kings or any of, yeah, another, those 80 schools that we're going to rank here in a few weeks that we're going to say, put a blanket over them because it's really hard to to make a difference or to, to, to tell the difference from one to the other. It's good to talk to them too. Yeah, so when I listened to the June podcast, uh, preparing for this one, I just didn't want to come into this one clueless, and it had been since, what, April, since we'd done one. Um, The Norwich interview obviously uh, was surprising, um, although I knew you did it, Um, but it was interesting because of the conference change to the new MAC, right? Logical storyline, but also their status as a private military college, which I think some of our listeners knew and you and I have known over the years, but we'd uh, to hear um, Coach Merniak talk in depth about that and about the sort of the split between um, the, the civilian students and the uh, ROTC track students and then the whole history with Pierre Garcon to, you know, that that was all fascinating. And it's stuff we never would have sat down and say, hey, let's put let's make this part of the podcast. And I know that was one of your goals uh, when we started doing them in the offseason is to talk about more than just what happened last Saturday, where these teams rank. Um, so go back and listen to that one uh, if you haven't uh, when you're done with this one. Um, it was uh, this one was this particular interview was was timely because of the Mike Donnelly connection uh, between Coach Nar. But um, but I also learned things about the Kings Wilkes rivalry that I never would have otherwise. D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're joined by East Texas Baptist coach Scott Highsmith. Highsmith in his third season on staff, his first as the head coach. Coach, you're taking over this program now as the third head coach in three years. So first of all, congratulations, but uh, second of all, good luck. Well, I'm really excited about it, and I'm really thrilled about it. uh, I think it's a real challenging situation, but one that we're certainly up to. The door has kind of rotated over the course of the past few years, but you worked under Josh Urkel, who was the head coach two years ago, under Scotty Walden, who was the head coach last year. How do you feel the Tigers program will be different under you than it was under the previous two coaches? We're going to try to keep things as, as, uh, as simply as possible, and we're just going to try to keep things as consistent as possible. In other words, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we're, we're going to do a lot of the same things. Of course, I'm going to put my own, uh, you know, my own, stamp on this thing and we'll do a few things differently but it's going to be much 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 the same. I think when we think of East Texas Baptist over the course of the past couple of years we think about the offense and some of the great individual offensive players who've come out of the program and you've been front and center with the offense over the course of your couple of years on staff how do you picture that continuing? Basically we're going to do the same thing Um, you know I was a part of Hal Mummy's uh, staff for a while and Hal and I were roommates in college 
so we've known each other for a while. And so, uh, you know, we may incorporate some air raid principles here and there, but basically we're going to do the same thing and, and uh, make sure that we don't, uh, don't screw this thing up. <laughs> <laughs> Is there room for more air raid in the American Southwest Conference? I think there's room for air raid in any conference. I really do. I think it's a heck of a way to throw the football. It's as good as any place I've ever seen or as good as any system I've ever seen. And uh, really excited about that. I guess if I'm looking back and seeing you were a passing game coordinator at a previous stop at the high school level and obviously coaching on the offensive side of the football at ETBU previously, I shouldn't be too surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And hey, make no mistake, we love to run the football here. And I love to run the football here. I was a running back in college and, and, uh, you know, when I first got into coaching, we threw it some, but I cut my teeth also on a wing tee and the Nebraska power eye. So uh, we're, we're going to try to be the complete offense and and basically be good at everything. I know a lot of people think that's not possible, but but I, I do. I think it, it can be done and, and just try to take what the defense gives us. Last year, Scotty Walden, head coach, got a lot of notice, a lot of notoriety for being the youngest head coach in Division Three football, perhaps the youngest in NCAA football, I don't remember. But at age 26, there's a significantly different character than you this year coming in as head coach. And I'd have to think that Coach Walden must have really related well to the players because his experience as a college student was pretty relatable. How are you going to relate to the student-athletes considering the contrast between you and the guy before you? I just people respond to, I just think people respond to love and respect no matter what the age it is given from. So I've always loved people. I've always been young at heart and uh, it's not a problem. I think that relates to me very, very well. One of the things we talk about in Division Three in general is kind of the role of athletics on campus. And in a lot of places, and I would have to think that East Texas Baptist University is one of them, the enrollment of the school is heavily dependent on the number of student-athletes. What's it like working at a school like that where you know that the school really depends on athletics to keep the campus vibrant and keep things moving? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, uh, enrollment's important at any campus and certainly important. Campus here, our enrollment is very, very important. So what we end up doing is pretty much recruiting year-round. I know a lot of people uh, do that, uh, um, you know, as is. But, you know, we, you know we're going to sign kids on National Signing Day, and then we're going to babysit them until they get in here in August. So, uh Basically, we try to bring in as many uh, players as we can without sacrificing uh, character or, or intelligence and, um, and just let the tide roll as it may. The American Southwest Conference is getting a little bigger this year, right? Texas Lutheran's coming back into the fold. Southwestern is joining. I guess one thing you don't have to worry about is uh, how you're going to fill your schedule for a while. No, it's, it's pretty well filled up. We've got uh, one non-conference game with Southwest Assembly of God out of like Waxahachie, and so... Uh, after that, it's, uh, it's time to grind. One of the other things that I think is important for a program that is looking for an opportunity to get an at-large bid to the playoffs is putting together a full Division Three schedule. I know you most likely did not have a lot of input as to how this particular schedule was put together, and I know when conferences change membership that all sorts of things can get thrown out the window. But are you guys going to get a Division Three opponent for that 10th game at some point? Well, we've got one for, for next year. We're, we're like, still looking for somebody for 2018, 2019. Uh, so... Uh, we, we need to get that filled, but we're, we're set for next year. Tell me a little bit about your take on or your view of the ASC. It's a conference that you guys have been competitive in at some points, sometimes in the middle of the pack, and the conference, of course, now with the defending national champs in it and a couple of extra teams, has to look even more tough than usual. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's as tough a conference as there is in Division III. Uh, you've got the returning national champion, uh, Mary Harden-Baylor, and they're always good. You know, they're always going to be a top-five team. 
Hardin Simmons is an established power. Um, you know, I know that they, they may not be in the top 10 every year, but they're very, very good. And they're very close to being uh, extremely good. And then on down the line, it's just an even, even conference, uh, pretty much all the way down the line with, with teams like us that are pretty uh, compatible and, and, uh, and pretty evenly matched. So it's a very, very tough conference. you got to be ready to play every week. And if you're not, you're in trouble. How do you, as an offensive guy, look at the way your defense has to line up against a lot of these offenses? We've in the past, uh, maybe not so much the last year or so, but going back a couple of years, kind of referred to this conference tongue-in-cheek as the Little 12 because there's so much offense played in this conference and the defenses seem to have little to no hope of catching up. Well, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I think that the, the tempo of uh, play now has picked up to the point where I think that's given offenses tremendous advantage. And uh, we play fast and furious, just like a lot of other people. But we, we put a lot of emphasis on defense, too. Um, and, uh, you know, we understand that defense is a major, major, major part of the game. And I do believe that defense wins champions, championships, just like everybody else. And so uh, we've got good people on that side of the ball and good coaches, and we're going to get after it. Not too many grass fields left in Division Three, and, and you guys were removing yours over the course of the offseason, joining the group of teams with artificial turf. Does that affect how you guys game plan this year or what you do coming up in 2017? No, no. It just helps us tremendously in recruiting, uh, and it puts us in a situation to where if it does rain, if, if there is a situation where we're having to deal with inclement weather, we can stay at home uh, as opposed to trying to find another field of practice. So it's a tremendous asset for us. I think one of my favorite pictures over the course of the past few years was, uh, I think it was of Kendall Roberson just covered in mud on one of his epic days as a running back. Yeah, yeah. We, we had a couple of mud bowls here. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of people say it was to our advantage. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We had to play in it just like the other team did. So we, we came out on top, so we're very excited. One of the things we've always been interested in is who is a program's biggest rival. It's our rival. I know that uh, sometimes when a program is younger historically, that it might take some time for those rivalries and relationships to really develop. Who would ETBU point to as its biggest rival in football? Well, we have a, a trophy with Louisiana College called the Claw that uh, changes hands or at least has the potential to change hands every season. So I guess you'd have to say Louisiana College. And what's that rivalry like? What's it like when that game comes up on the schedule? It's just a typical rivalry. You know, there's a lot of emotion. Uh, kids play hard. It's always going to be close because everybody wants to win it. There's something to play for. There's a lot of state pride in line in, 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 uh, at stake. And, um, you know, we're almost uh, – we're, we're closer to the, to the state of Louisiana by our locale than a lot of places in Texas. So we're going to recruit Louisiana. So that adds a little bit of incentive to, uh, to what we can do as, as far as um, – recruiting is concerned and, and as far as them having enough time to say hey we, you know uh, don't come into our state and take our athletes so <laughs> it's a typical rival situation and it's a lot of fun i'm looking at last year's game a 64 62 win you guys ran out the clock with a couple of minutes left to finish that one out yeah what a game it was um uh, and and again your your theory about the little 12 definitely came true that night there was not a lot of defense play but a lot of excitement. The fans loved it, and uh, people getting after it, and, and just nobody would quit. No matter what happened, uh, nobody quit. And that was one of those games where, you know, um, either team could have won. We just had more points at the end of the game than they did. 
Keith, this is already a program that we've kept an eye on, but I think even more so now. Uh, Tigers have some bright spots, but uh, certainly a team that could get lost in the middle of the pack in that league. And not to overemphasize the point, but uh, three coaches in three years just makes things more difficult, I think. Well, that was one of my concerns when I was looking uh, at East Texas Baptist as a fringe candidate for a top 25 vote. Just some of the teams at the bottom of the top 25 just didn't have a lot back. Uh, Thomas Moore. Only nine starters, although they have Brendan Kuntz. Um, Wittenberg, 11 starters, but they have Reed Florence. So uh, I was looking at, uh, you know, Hopkins, only 10 starters. I told you earlier about Alfred and Co. East Texas Baptist is a team that has 14 starters back, including eight on defense. And I always like to see a team with eight, nine, 10, 11 players back on one side of the ball or the other. Um, but the coaching change, I think there and, and Johns Hopkins really is a concern because you don't know if that new coaching staff can pick up where the old one left off, even if it's not an entirely new staff, um, you just don't you don't know how the, the kids will respond to uh, to being coached differently. Um, maybe it works out well. And and the other thing I thought um, I think about East Texas Baptist, you mentioned it, and I was super impressed that uh, that Coach Highsmith jumped on the uh, the little twelve reference. Is that it's such a offensively potent conference that um, when you say uh, any team could win any Saturday. It's also probably true in, in the ASC, except for maybe May Harden Baylor and, and Harden Simmons. Uh, you see, but you see these scores, and every team really, literally, does have a lot of offensive talent and uh, and can put up big numbers. So you mentioned that 64-62 game. Um, you know, at some weekends, it's 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 who who plays defense or who comes up with some turnovers uh, because uh, every team in that conference can can put up some numbers. If I remember correctly, 64-62, higher than the men's basketball score between those schools from the uh, previous year, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I've got uh, another thing on our uh, rundown here for this podcast before we uh, get to the credits and any other uh, newses and notes and asides. Keith, uh, have you checked your phone lately? I texted you a photo. It's clean. Uh, it, it's clean. Don't worry. Well, I hope so. Good Lord. Pat, this is a family podcast. Uh Yeah. Uh, it's uh, I, I don't know what I don't know what the podcast ratings are. Is this a is there a TV fourteen for podcasts? I don't know. I did see the photo though, and yeah. when you mentioned when you when you mentioned the Craig Burroughs collection to me, I thought that was something I have hanging in my closet. Like you know, maybe <laughs> I could have a nice jacket or shirt from the Craig Burroughs collection. But uh, I believe you mentioned this in an earlier podcast, yeah. sort of coming up with a lot of historical elements and, and artifacts. I guess for lack of a better way to put it. Uh, from D3. And the one that you texted me is, um, unfortunately, from uh, from the Newt Rockney Bowl the year Hampton-Sydney played True. Uh, the University of Bridgeport. But if you go back to 1969, the fine Yellow Jackets of Randolph-Macon, I believe they also played Bridgeport in uh, what was then, um, it wasn't a national championship game. There was right. a Stag Bowl for the western half and the Newt Rockney Bowl, I guess, for the eastern and southern half. I or did just Virginia just count as the East? I don't know. Um, but 69 was the year that Macon won the New Rockney Bowl. So they never won a Stag Bowl, my fine alma mater, but they have uh, won a, a New Rockney Bowl. And my uh, point in texting that to you was not to rub in Hampton-Sydney versus Randolph-Macon. Hampton-Sydney lost this Newt Rockney Bowl 17-12. to But the, the Craig Burroughs collection is this pile of boxes I have in my garage from uh, the late Craig Burroughs. And uh, Craig Burroughs' widow contacted me now about a year and a half ago. It's a guy who traveled across the country uh, watching college football at all levels. Sprint football, 
Division One JV, D3 games. I ran into him several times uh, at various places, mostly at games that were played on Friday nights. Uh, he liked Friday night games as much as I did because it enabled him to watch more than one game in a weekend. But he's got this box full of stuff, and a lot of it, you know, in all honesty, Keith is uh, I'm doling it out into my recycling bin every couple of weeks um, because I can't I, – I have a lot of recycling just generally – um, so I can't put too many of these things in there. But every once in a while, I come across a gem. And this is, yeah, the 1971 Newt Rockne Bowl uh, East College Division II Championship. It comes, uh, well, it comes with a uh, ticket stub stapled to it, which uh, means that I would not be able to get a whole lot for this on eBay, I'm sure, because um, it's not particularly mint condition. But just kind of going through, uh, you know, a reminder, this game is played indoors in uh, in Atlantic City in the convention hall. Um, there's uh, some cool little history about uh, indoor games in Atlantic City. Uh, the first one was October 25th of 1930 when Lafayette met W&J. Uh, and it is a full-size field, which I'm not sure I knew. In case you had doubts uh, on the one of the spreads here in this program, they have uh, a full uh, a full-page picture of the uh, field and it might be uh might be a little short in the end zones but otherwise um you know let's say northwestern could play at wrigley field and probably not do probably not do much worse it's just very interesting there's a there's a couple of interesting artifacts there's a lot of things that aren't all that interesting um and especially non-division three things uh but i've been holding on to some stuff like this and i'll try to pull it out to to kind of talk through it in podcasts uh down the road yeah, and you should you should tweet it out too, so other folks can get the visual on it, and then you can clear Take your conscience bids. and and put it in the recycling bin as knowing oh, that no. you've done your your job of preserving D three <laughs> uh, history. No, I'll hold uh, I'll hold on to this one. This one won't go in recycling at least. Well, and and one thing I did notice from it from that ticket stub staple to the front that you mentioned, uh, price for for the main floor is three dollars, and yeah. uh, over the years we've gotten into some D three games for about five dollars, but less than ten certainly. Yeah. Still, so uh, among the many, many great things about D3, um, resistance to inflation is, is yet another. You can you can still get a good college football game on Saturday for a good price. Yeah, so uh, like Keith said, you can look for that on Twitter. Uh, I will post a uh, photo of that to Twitter some point on Tuesday. And presumably this podcast drops on Tuesday. And if so, well, regardless of whether it drops on Tuesday or not... <laughs> <laughs> if we don't keep talking straight into Tuesday, right? Uh, that's right. Uh, hey, this is early. Uh, but this was Around the Nation podcast number 171 for the month of July 2017. Thanks for listening and uh, keep an eye on the rest of our preseason coverage. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in iTunes, in uh, Podkicker, Stitcher, whatever uh, your podcasting store or source uh, that you favor is. Uh, that will help other football fans find it. And we really appreciate, uh, as of last check, I saw uh, 12 five-star reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. That actually does mean quite a bit to us. Because, um, you know, I don't know if you hear, but we put together this podcast uh, about 24 times a year and, uh, and about 22 of them um, begging for sponsors. So it's nice to know. 
Uh, executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and Robert Coleman. We've got music by bensound.com. And thanks to our guests, Aaron Hafner, Jeff Nahr, Scott Highsmith, and uh, their sports information directors, Dave Hildebrand, Bob Zadie, and Adam Ledyard for their time and their contributions to this edition of our show. And of course, uh, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my returning co-host, Keith McMillan. Welcome back, Keith. You can... Reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I am at D3Football on Twitter. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know that? You can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. You must use a real email address. Uh, and also you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook as well. Uh, Off-season podcast mode is almost done, but you will get one more of our monthly shows in August and then weekly podcasts starting Labor Day weekend on into Christmas. So that's the scope of what we do here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. I don't have anything else to say. Uh, we've, we've talked a lot. I don't know if we need a rollout today. That's why I purposely didn't say anything. <laughs>